Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Hello and welcome back. I got a little out of whack here because of some business travel, but now we're back. So we're still on book one of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, chapter 29, The Story of the Scottish Templars. The story connecting the Knights Templar with Freemasonry in Scotland, after their return from the Crusades and after the crushing of their order, forms one of the most interesting and romantic legends that is offered in the history of our fraternity. The elements of history and tradition are so mingled with its incidents that only with difficulty can they be satisfactorily separated. There are some writers of reputation who accept everything that has been said concerning the connection in the 14th century of the Freemasons of Scotland with the Templars who were then in that country, or who escaped to it as a place of safety from the attacks of the French king. Such writers hold these statements as a trustworthy account of events which actually occurred. There are others who reject the whole as a myth over fable which has no support in history. Here, as in most other cases, the middle course appears to be the safest and the best. While there are some parts of the story based upon historical records, there are others which certainly are without the benefit of such evidence. In the present chapter, we shall try, by careful and fair tests, to separate the conflicting elements and to sever the historical from the legendary or purely traditional portions of the reports. But it will be necessary, in clearing the way for any faithful study of the subject, to look briefly at the history of those events which were connected with the suppression of the ancient order of Knights Templar in France at the beginning of the 14th century. The Templars, on leaving the Holy Land, upon the unfortunate ending of the Last Crusade and the fall of Acre, halted for refuge in the island of Cyprus. After some vain attempts to regain a footing in Palestine and to renew their contest with their infidels who were now in complete possession of that country, the knights left from Cyprus and went to their several commanderies in Europe, among which those in France were the most wealthy and the most numerous. Philip IV, known in history by the nickname of Philip the Fair, reigned on the French throne at this period of history, and Clement V was the pontiff of the Roman Church. Never before had the crown or the tiara been worn by a more greedy king or a more faithless pope. Clement, when he was bishop of Bordeaux, had got the help of the French king toward his election to the papacy by obligating himself by an oath on the sacrament to fulfill six conditions demanded of him by the king. The last of these was reserved as a secret until after Clement became pope. When this latter demand came to light, it proved to bind him to destroy the Templars, an order whose power Philip envied and whose wealth he coveted. Pope Clement, who had removed his residence from Rome to Poitiers in France, called the heads of the military orders to appear before him for the purpose, as he falsely pretended, of preparing the plans to begin a new crusade. Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Templars, therefore went to the papal court. While there, the King of France offered a series of of charges against the order, upon which he asked that it be destroyed and that its leaders be punished. The story of the events that followed at once upon the making of these charges from what has well been called a black page in the history of the order. 
On the 13th of October, 1307, the Grand Master and 139 knights were arrested in the Palace of the Temple at Paris. Similar arrests were on the same day made in various parts of France. The arrested Templars were thrown into prison and loaded with chains. They were not given sufficient food and were refused the comforts of religion. Twenty-six princes and nobles of the court of France appeared against them, but even these attacks were not enough. Before any verdict had been set forth by the trial judges, the shameless Pope Clement issued a bull of excommunication, his official curse, against all persons who should give the Templars aid or kindness. Then came trials. If these had not been so cruelly unjust, they would have been worse than absurd. The rack and the torture were freely applied. Those who stood firm in a denial of guilt were given imprisonment for life, or they met death by burning at the stake. Addison says that 113 were burnt in Paris, and others died likewise in Lorraine, in Normandy, at Carcassonne, and at Senlis. The last scene of the tragedy was enacted on the 11th of March, 1314. Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Order, after being imprisoned for six and a half years, was publicly burnt in front of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Thus the Order was totally crushed in France and its property taken away. The other monarchs of Europe followed the example of the King of France in abolishing the Order in their countries, but in a more merciful spirit they did not inflict the death penalty upon the knights. Outside of France, in all the kingdoms of Europe, not a Templar was put to death. However, the order was everywhere destroyed, and a spoil made of its vast wealth, notwithstanding that in every country, beyond the influence of the Pope and the King of France, its general innocence was upheld. The claim is made that in Portugal it changed its name to that of the Knights of Christ. Everywhere else the order ceased to exist. For reasons given on another page, some hold that the Portuguese Knights of Christ are in no particular related to the Knights Templar. Writers like Burns maintain that the persecution of the Templars in the 14th century did not close the history of the order, but that there has been a series without a halt of Knights Templar from the 12th century down to these modern days. Dr. Burns refers to the order of the Temple and the claim that has been made of the transfer of the powers of the Grand Master de Molay to Johannes Marcus Larmenius. With this question, and with the so-called Charter of Transmission, the topic we are about to discuss has no connection, and we therefore make no further allusion to them. From the influence of natural causes after the death of the Grand Master and the cruel crushing of the Order in France, it is likely that many of the Knights must have sought safety by flight to other countries. This seems evident without the necessity of any historical proof. It is to their acts in Scotland that we are now to direct our attention. There are two legends in existence relating to the connection of Templarism with the Freemasonry of Scotland, each of which will require our separate attention. The first may be called the Legend of Bruce, and the other the Legend of Domont. In Scotland, the possessions of the Order were very extensive. Their preceptories were scattered in various parts of the country. A papal inquisition or court was held at Holyrood in 1309 to examine and, of course, to destroy the Templars. At this trial, only two knights, Walter de Clifton, Grand Preceptor of Scotland, and William de Middleton appeared. The others fled. Robert Bruce was then marching to meet and repel the invasion of King Edward of England, and the Templars are said to have joined the army of the Scottish leader. Thus far, the various accounts of the Bruce legend agree, but in the other details there are differences not so easily settled. According to one version, the Templars showed great bravery and ability at the Battle of Bannockburn, which was fought on St. John the Baptist's Day, 1314. After the battle, a new order was formed, called the Royal Order of Scotland, into which the Templars were admitted. But Oliver thinks very justly that the two orders were separate from each other. 
Authority says that Robert Bruce, King of Scotland, under the title of Robert I, created on the 24th of June 1314, after the Battle of Bannockburn, the Order of St. Andrew of the Thistle, to which was afterward added that of Herodom, for the sake of the Scottish Freemasons, a part of 30,000 men who had fought with 100,000 English soldiers. He retained for himself and his successors the title of Grand Master, and founded at Kilwinning the Grand Lodge of the Royal Order of Herodom. The Manual of the Order of the Temple says that the Templars, at the suggestion of Robert Bruce, put themselves under the banners of this new order whose initiations were based on those of the Templars. For this desertion they were expelled by John Mark Larminius, who is claimed to have been the lawful successor of Jacques de Molay. None of these statements are capable of historical proof. The Order of Knights of St. Andrew or of the Thistle was not created by Bruce in 1340, but by James II in 1440. There is no evidence that the Templars ever made a part of the royal order of Herodom. At this day, the two are entirely distinct. Nor is it now accepted as a fact that the royal order was founded by Bruce after the Battle of Bannockburn, although such is the basis of the esoteric legend. On the contrary, it is supposed to have been the work of Michael Ramsey in the 18th century. The remarks of Brother Lyon, who has made the Freemasonry of Scotland his especial study, are well worth quoting on this subject. The ritual of the Royal Order of Scotland embraces, he says, what may be termed a spiritualization of the supposed symbols and ceremonies of the Christian architects and builders of primitive times, and so closely associates the sword with the trowel as to lead to the second degree being denominated an order of Masonic knighthood. This, its recipients are asked to believe, was first conferred on the field of Bannockburn as a reward for the valor that had been displayed by a body of Templars who aided Bruce in that memorable victory, and that afterward a Grand Lodge of the Order was established by the King at Kilwinning, with the reservation of the office of Grand Master to him and his successors on the Scottish throne. It is further asserted that the Royal Order and the Masonic Fraternity of Kilwinning were governed by the same head, as regards the claims to antiquity and a royal origin that are advanced in favor of this right, it is proper to say that modern inquiries have shown these to be purely fabulous. The credence that is given to that part of the legend which associates the order with the ancient lodge of Kilwinning is based on the assumed certainty that the lodge possessed in former times a knowledge of other degrees of masonry than those of St. John. But such is not the case. The fraternity of Kilwinning never at any period practiced or acknowledged other than the craft degrees. Neither does there exist any tradition worthy of the name, local or national, nor has any authentic document yet been discovered that can in the remotest degree be held to identify Robert Bruce with the holding of Masonic courts or the institution of a secret society at Kilwinning. Such a statement was made by a writer who, from his position as Grand Secretary and his opportunities as a scholarly Scottish Freemason, was well able to find the proofs, if there were any to be discovered. We may therefore safely conclude that Bruce and Bannockburn legend of Scottish Templarism is to be deemed a pure myth, without the slightest historical element to behold it. Another legend connects the Templars in Scotland with Freemasonry and deserves our attention. This legend says that in order to escape from the cruelties that followed the erasing of the order by the King of France, a certain Templar named Dalmont, accompanied by seven others disguised as mechanics or operative Freemasons, fled into Scotland and there secretly founded another order. 
to preserve as much as possible the ancient name of Templars, as well as to retain in memory and to do honor to the Freemasons in whose clothing they had disguised themselves when they fled, they adopted the name of Macons in connection with the word Franck and called themselves Franck Macons. This they did because the old Templars were the most part Frenchmen, and as the word Franck means both French and free, and Macon means Mason, when they established themselves in England, they called themselves Freemasons. As the ancient order had been founded for the purpose of rebuilding the Temple of Jerusalem, the new order maintained their bond of union and preserved the memory and the design of those who had gone before by building symbolically spiritual temples dedicated to virtue, truth, and light, and to honor of the grand architect of the universe. Such is the legend as given by a writer in the Dutch Freemasons' Almanac, from which it is cited in the London Freemasons' Quarterly Review. Clavel, in his picturesque history of Freemasonry, gives it more in detail almost in the words of von Hund. After the execution of Jacques de Molay, Peter Delmont, the provincial grandmaster of Auvergne, with two commanders and five knights, fled for safety and directed their course towards Scotland, concealing their identity during the journey under the guise of operative Freemasons. Having landed on the Scottish Isle of Mull, they there met the Grand Commander George Harris and several other brethren, with whom they resolved to continue the order. Dolmont was elected Grand Master in a chapter held on St. John's Day, 1313. To protect themselves from all chance of discovery and persecution, they adopted symbols taken from architecture and took the title of Freemasons. In 1361, the Grand Master of the Temple transferred the seat of the order to the old city of Aberdeen, Scotland, and from that time it spread as Freemasonry through Italy, Germany, France, Portugal, Spain, and other places. On this legend, the Baron von Hund founded his right of strict observance. With the false documents in his keeping, he attempted, but without success, to obtain the consent of the Congress of Wilhelmsbad to his dogma that every Freemason was a Templar. Though this doctrine made but slow progress in Germany, it was more readily accepted in France. Already it had been made known there by the chapter of Clermont into whose Templar system von Hund had been initiated. For many years the opinion has existed among Masonic writers that the Chevalier Ramsay was the real author of the doctrine of the Templar origin of Freemasonry, and that to him we are really indebted, if the debt has any value, for the Domont legend. If so, the source whence it sprang is fair evidence that it is more fiction than fact. The inventive genius of Ramsay is well known. In making or reporting legends, he cared but little for the support of history. If his genius, his learning, and his zeal had been given not to forming new Masonic systems, but to a thorough study of the true origin of the institution, working only upon and for reliable history, very great benefit would have come from his labors. The useless desert which for three-fourths of a century spread over the continent, bearing no fruit except fanciful theories, absurd systems, and unnecessary degrees, would have been occupied in all probability by a race of Masonic scholars whose researches directed to the creation of a genuine history would have lessened much of the labor of our modern students. The Masonic scholars of that long period, which began with Ramsay and has hardly yet ended, assumed for the most part rather the part of poets than of historians. They did not remember the wise saying of Cervantes that the poet may say or sing, not as things have been, but as they ought to have been, while the historian must write of them as they really were, and not as he thinks they ought to have been. Hence, we have a mass of traditional rubbish in which there is a great deal of falsehood with very little truth. Such is the legend of Peter Dolmont and his work for the Order of Knights Templar in Scotland. 
Without a particle of historical evidence for its support, it has nevertheless exerted a powerful influence on the Masonic organization of even the present day. We find its effects show in the most important rites and give a Templar form to many degrees. Perhaps the use of Templarism in the modern Masonic system is mainly to be credited to ideas suggested by this Domont legend. There appears to be some difficulty in adjusting the supposed opinions of the outcast churchless Templars with the approved faith of the Scottish Freemasons. To meet this objection, a third legend was invented, in which it was stated that after the abolition of the Templars, the clerical part of the order, that is, the chaplains and priests, united in Scotland to revive and transfer it into Freemasonry. This legend has not met with many supporters and was never strongly urged. We need, therefore, do no more than thus briefly mention it. The legend of Domont has exerted an influence in mingling together the elements of Templarism and Freemasonry, as we see at the present day in Britain and in America, and in the advanced degrees formed on the continent of Europe. But the dogma usually credited to Ramsey, that every Freemason is a Templar, has been denied, and the truth of the legend doubted by nearly all Masonic scholars. Dr. Burns, who believed in a lawful origin of the French Order of the Temple as being directly derived from de Molay through Larmenius, and who therefore subscribed without hesitation to the authenticity of the Charter of Transmission, yet he does not halt in calling von Hunt an adventurer and his legend of Domont a plausible tale. That part of the legend relating to the transfer of the chief headquarters of the Templars to Aberdeen, Scotland, causes Dr. Burns to say, The imposture was soon detected, and it was even discovered that he himself enticed and initiated the ill-fated pretender into his fabulous order of chivalry. The delusions on this subject had taken such a hold in Germany that they were not altogether dispelled until a deputation had actually visited Aberdeen and found amongst the worthy and astonished brethren there no trace either of very ancient Templars or of Freemasonry. Burns is in error with this last assertion. It is alleged that the Lodge of Aberdeen was instituted in 1541, though as its more ancient minutes have been, as it is said, destroyed by fire. Its present records go no further back than 1670. Brother Lyon agrees with Burns in the statement that the Aberdeenians were much surprised when first told that their lodge was an ancient center of the knightly degrees. Wilhelm Frederick Wilke, a German writer of great ability, has attacked the truth of this Scottish legend with a closeness of reasoning and a vigor of arguments that leave but little room for answer. As he gives the legend in a slightly different form, it may be interesting to quote it, as well as his course of argument. The legend relates, he says, that after the suppression of the order, the head of the Templar clergy, Peter of Boulogne, fled from prison and took refuge with the high commander Hugh Wildgrave of Psalm, and thence escaped to Scotland with Sylvester von Grumbach. Thither the Grand Commander Harris and Marshal Dalmont had likewise betaken themselves, and these three preserved the secrets of the Order of Templars and transferred them to the Fraternity of Freemasons. Commenting on this statement, Vilki says it is true that Peter of Boulogne fled from prison, but where he went never has been known. The wild grave of Solemn never was in prison. But the legendist entangled himself in saying that Peter left the Wildgrave Hugh and went to Scotland with Sylvester von Grumbach, for Hugh and Sylvester are one and the same person. His title was Count Sylvester Wildgrave, and Grumbach was the name of his Templar commandery. Hugh of Psalm, also Wildgrave and commander of Grumbach, never took refuge in Scotland, and after the abolition of the order was made Prebendary, a paid official of the Cathedral of Mayence. 
Vilke thinks that the continuation of the Templar order was credited to Scotland because of the higher degrees of Freemasonry, having reference in a political sense to the pretender, Edward Stuart, were called Scotch. Scotland is, therefore, the cradle of the advanced degrees of Freemasonry. Here Mackey was inclined to differ from him and disposed to refer the explanation to the circumstance that Ramsay, the inventor of the legend and the first maker of the high degrees, was a native of Scotland and was born into the neighborhood of Kilwinning. To these degrees he gave the name of Scottish masonry, in a spirit of nationality, and therefore Scotland was supposed to be their birthplace. Vilke says that Harris and Domont are not mentioned in the real history of the Templars, and therefore, if they were knights, they could not have had any prominence in the order. Neither would have been likely to have been chosen by the fleeing knights as their Grand Master. He concludes by saying that of course some of the hunted Templars found their way to Scotland, and it may be believed that certain of the brethren were admitted into the building fraternities. That is no reason why either the lodges of builders or the Knights of St. John should be considered as a continuation of the Templar order, because they both received Templar fugitives. The less is this likely, as the building guilds were not, like the Templars, of chivalrous and free-thinking worldlings, but pious workmen who cherished the pure doctrines of religion. Theorists in the desire to link up Templarism with Freemasonry have brought about the invention of other fables in which the Hiramic legend of the Master's degree is replaced by others referring to events said to have occurred in the history of the knightly order. The most ingenious of these is the following. Sometime before the destruction of the Order of Templars, a certain sub-prior of Montfaucon, named Carolus de Monte Caramel, was murdered by three traitors. From the events that followed this murder, it is said that an important part of the ritual of Freemasonry has been taken. The assassins of the sub-prior of Montfaucon hid his body in a grave, and in order to locate the spot, planted a young thorn tree there. The Templars, searching for the body, had their attention drawn to the spot by the tree, and in that way they discovered the victim's remains. The legend goes on to tell of the taking up of the body and its removal to another grave, in striking similarity with the same events mentioned in the legend of Hiram. Still another theory connects the death of Jacques de Molay, Grandmaster of the Templars, with the legend of the Third Degree. It supposes that in the legend, as now preserved in the Masonic ritual, Hiram has been made to replace de Molay, that the fact of the Templar entrance into Freemasonry might be concealed. Thus the events which in the genuine Masonic legend are referred to Hiram Bebeuf are in the Templar legend made applicable to Jacques de Molay. The three assassins are said to be Pope Clement V, Philip the Fair, King of France, and a Templar named Naphidae, who betrayed the order. They have even attempted to explain the mystical search for the body by the invention of a fable that on the night after Jacques de Molay had been burnt at the stake, certain knights diligently sought for his remains among the ashes. They could find only some bones to which the flesh, though scorched, still adhered, but which it left immediately upon their being handled. In this way, they explain the origin of the substitute word according to the mistranslation too generally accepted. Nothing could more clearly show the absurdity of the legend than this adoption of a popular interpretation of the meaning of this word, an explanation made by someone utterly ignorant of the Hebrew language. The word, as is now well known to all scholars, has a totally different meaning. We need not look to so unessential a part of the story for proof that the whole legend of the relationship of Templarism with Freemasonry does not fit in with the facts of history. The tale asks too much to be seriously accepted. The legend of Bruce and Bannockburn has already been examined by us and will not stand the test, for it has no basis in history. The other legend, that makes Domont and his companions pioneers of the Masonic Order in Scotland by uniting the knights via the fraternity of builders, is equally without a foundation in history. 
Besides, there is a feature of improbability, if not of impossibility, about it. The Knights Templar were an aristocratic order, high-born gentlemen who had accepted the soldier's life as their vocation, and who were governed by the customs of chivalry. In those days of old, there was a much wider line of separation drawn between the various sections of society than exists at the present time. The belted knight was at the top of the social scale, the mechanic at the bottom. Therefore, it is almost out of the question to believe that because their order had been destroyed, these proud soldiers of the cross, whose military life had unfitted them for any other pursuit except that of war, would have thrown aside their swords and their spurs and taken in hand the trowel. With the use of this peaceful tool and all the mysteries of the builder's craft, they were wholly strangers by training, taste, or purpose. To become operative Freemasons, they must at once give up all the agreeable habits and pursuits of social life in which they had been instructed from early youth. That a knight Templar would have gone into some religious house of monks as a retreat from the world, whose usage of his order had disgusted him, or taken refuge in some other chivalric order, might reasonably happen, as was actually the case. That these knights would have willingly become stonemasons and daily workmen is a claim too absurd to get full belief even from the most trusting. We may then be confident that those legendists who have sought by their own invented traditions to trace the origin of Freemasonry to Templarism, or to prove any unity of contact between the two institutions, have failed in their object. They may have attempted to write a history. They have succeeded in making a romance more open to the blunt denial of the reader than to permit of his having doubt that it is what it claims to be. And that concludes the chapter. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.